All right, folks. Well, what a treat. We get to spend another week together talking about poker on the Rec Poker Podcast. I got to thank our sponsors, the Running Aces Hotel, Racetrack and Casino, and Website Mark over at uh, Website Amp. The reason our sponsors are so important is because most of what we do here is uh, volunteer-based. Almost everything we do at Rec Poker is free. And so uh, the sponsorship makes a big difference. And also our premium members make a huge difference. And so I want to thank uh, our newest premium member who just joined up over the weekend, Mary McCoon. So Mary, thanks uh, for joining. Thanks for the support. And welcome to the Rec Poker family. I think you're going to have a really good time here. You're going to have some fun and you're going to learn, learn a lot of great stuff about poker. From fine folks like the gentlemen that are joining me tonight. Um, in case I haven't mentioned it, my name's Jim Reed. I've got the best job in the world, so I get to host this podcast a couple of times a week. I'm Rec Poker Jim on Twitter and Blusterini in the home game. If you want to find out more about me or anyone else on the Wrecking Crew, you can go to rec.poker slash crew and check it out there. Um, or you can just listen up a little bit because you're about to meet a few of the Rec Poker members or the Rec Poker Wrecking Crew members right now. Well, I'm Chris Jones. You can find me 5B5 on Twitter or 5x5 in the Poker Stars home game. And I'm John Somsky. I am Poker Geek MN everywhere. And I'm Keith Brandt, and I am Monkey System everywhere. And I'm Rob Washam, and you can find me as Rabman50 just about everywhere. And uh, we've got a great group of uh, members that join us each and every week as we're recording the podcast here. If you're joining us on YouTube, which I really do encourage, uh, folks can watch every week live and uh, enter a contest at the end of every show. Uh, we The way that you can show your support by either subscribing to the podcast on your audio format or by subscribing to that YouTube channel, it does help a lot. I'm getting some feedback from our folks in the YouTube chat right now. Um, in fact, John Letsey, Martha, and Evil Roy Slade. So I'm excited to have them here, and I'm looking forward to uh, chatting with them and our members here a little more as we get along. So a few things to go over here as we get started. Often we have a guest in here. This week we don't have a guest, but the guest this week is the World Series of Poker. Um, we had the World Series last uh, July, just a month ago was the end of the main event or so. And um, we kind of talked about it a bit on a few episodes uh, right in July as we were recording it, but we thought we'd top it off with a little one last conversation. We're going to review a couple of the hands that I played in the World Series of Poker main event. Oh boy, that is just so nice to be able to say that out loud. That we're going to go over a couple of hands that I played in the World Series of Poker main event. Um, so I think that is uh, uh, pretty exciting for me. Obviously, a big um, pivot point, a big bucket list item for me. And so I'm excited to be here talking with the Wrecking Crew about a couple hands that uh, I played. And I think we now have our YouTube audience fully plugged in. Uh, I got to thank our co-host, our producing co-host this week, John Somsky, who's rocking the audio panel and keeping all the magic happening here. Um, so thank you, John, for your efforts here. I know Chris Jones, who is uh, our resident producing co-host, is uh, traveling a bit, but he is here for the conversation as well. So... Um, I introduced the panel. Uh, I talked about what we're going to talk about. Uh, I mentioned how folks can sort of get in touch with us, and uh, we've got our audio stuff all sorted out. So 
I guess let's just jump right into the conversation about the World Series of Poker. So um, I don't want this to be too heavy on strategy because we've got the forums edition where we really want to get into strategy. But um, I just want to talk about the World Series a bit, what it's like in Vegas, um, a couple hands that I played. And uh, if anyone has any questions about the series or about the main event or about other bracelet events or whatever, feel free to just type that right into the YouTube chat and we'll answer it here in real time. So first of all, uh, Keith, Rob, Chris, and John, who are joining me today in the booth, um, a couple of you had a chance to get down to Vegas this year, this summer, and it was the first time that the World Series of Poker was on the Strip at Paris and Bally's as opposed to uh, at the Rio. Um, Keith and Rob, I know you had a chance to rub elbows with some of the other uh, bracelet event players, the World Series uh, of Poker players. Did either of you find that it was definitely a good thing to move over there? It was definitely a bad thing? Were there some huge advantages or disadvantages? Keith, what what did you discover? Oh, I loved it. It was a definitely improvement. Uh, last year at the Rio was my first experience there. And now this year was everybody's first experience at Paris Bally's. And this place was twice as good. Uh, they, you know, there, there's a few hiccups and glitches, but for the most part, overall, it was just a wonderful experience. Yeah. Rob, what about you? Well, I, yeah, I definitely like the uh, venue there. I've, I've been to Bally's a number of times in the last year. Um, I played poker at their little poker room there. So it was, it felt like coming home, you know, whereas the Rio is, it's kind of off the, off of the beaten path. Um, and it's, it's so, it's kind of remote. If you think about it, the only thing close to it is the gold coast, which is across the street. Um, so it, it, it gives you so many more options for, you know, for dining, for, uh, you know, just hanging out with people and meeting in different spots and different locations, checking out other casinos, it's just a very uh, centralized location, and I thought the venue itself, the you know the the uh, ballrooms that they used were plenty big enough, just like just like the Rio. I mean, I think we had plenty of room there, and it was yeah, it was definitely a good experience. I thought. Yeah, me too. And I know people were worried about the parking, but I didn't find that to be a, a trial. Uh, Chris, did you get any perspective on it? Well, I I was just going to say, like, I, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to go this summer, so I didn't uh, experience the new venue. But um, and I, I, you know, I loved I loved playing in the World Series at the Rio, but um, it was it was definitely it had a hassle factor. It definitely meant spending more because I was always renting a car. I mm. never rent a car now. Mm-hmm. Um, it meant having to find parking. It meant because like the other thing that I like to do is go play like a bracelet event and you know, I don't win them all surprisingly. So then once I bust out, I like to be able to find, you know, some other, and I think there's some really other great options on the strip as well. And that makes them, you know, either walkable or Uberable or liftable or whatever your preferred rideshare uh, is. And, and that just makes it, you know, I think a lot more appealing to me. Yeah, definitely. We we didn't do a rec poker house this year um, because it was the first year it was on the strip and it was kind of unfamiliar to some people. But last year we did rent an Airbnb over in Paradise and the Ubers were just driving a man to the poor house, uh, going back and forth all the time. And it is, you can't, I mean, I walked from the strip to the Rio and back a couple of times. It's doable, but it's not pleasant. And um, 
I really did Not like the these summer. No, exactly. Exactly. And you got to go down like Mugger Alley uh, on the other yeah. side of the bridge there and everything. Yeah. Um, but being on the strip was great. And having all, like like Chris says, being able to sort of just walk over to another card room and get, get a game in easily was nice. And um, <laughs> John, and, uh, um, having all the different food options was really nice. I, I got to stay, I was down there for two out of three weeks, basically. And I got to stay in at Paris uh, for a few days. I got to stay at Bally's for a few days. And I got to stay at the Flamingo for a few days. And I would, I'm not going to give away all my secrets. Well, okay, I'll give away all my secrets. So the Flamingo is the nuts. I mean, it's, 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 it's an older uh, hotel. Um, it's not in as great shape necessarily but the prices are redonkulous compared to basically anything else that you can find on the strip service is great the location cannot be beat so so i mean a staying at paris and bally's is phenomenal because you just jump in an elevator and then boom you're on the gaming floor you don't even have to go outside so that was really convenient when i was uh playing on day one i was like eight minutes from my room so I could go up, swap out uh, my warm water bottle for a cold water bottle, use the washroom, you know, stretch my legs and come back down. And it was really easy and convenient. But at uh, at the Flamingo, really, all I had to do was cross the street. It was amazing. You could walk right, just go right outside, cut through a little parking lot. And, and there's a crosswalk right there that you could go right across the street. And then, boom, you're up uh, in your room at the Flamingo. So other people that uh, are there next year, they probably won't have the pleasure that I had of staying with Taylor Moss at the Flamingo. So I know you won't have as good a time as I did, but the uh, the experience was great. And I, I think I'll be staying at the Flamingo quite a bit. That's not my first day at the Flamingo, I have to say. It is a good time to be had. It's a great location. They're not paying me a dollar to say it, but uh, uh, I would advise that. John, where do you stay when you're uh, down there? Or what's that making you think about? I see your eyes. Well, you're excited. I was just thinking that... Uh... It would be really nice. I remember there um, we used to stay at a little place across from the Rio and then you'd want to go to something down on the strip that was playing. And, you know, it was like a two and a half or three mile walk. And only one person I know actually walked that. Oh, Stacey yeah. would would go and he would walk oh, that. He'd yeah. get up at like seven in the morning. So to beat the heat, because it'd be like 90 degree days or hundred degree days there. Uh, but I would think just, I've never stayed in the Rio when I've gone to the world series because mm. it seems a little claustrophobic, but when you staying downtown or staying on the strip is much different because there's so much around there that you don't feel like you're caged in the Rio. You can mm -hmm. get out of the World Series of Poker um, environment if you want to. Yeah, that's a great point because um, it really is kind of all in that one spot. Um, so, Keith, you were mentioning last year you went down and played at the Rio. That was the last year to do it at the Rio. Um, this year at uh, Paris and Bally's was the first year at Paris and Bally's. And next year, I guess, will be the first year at the Horseshoe. So um, I'm going to have to get another mug uh, to join my collection. And um, that's great. I've got room for one more mug, I think. I hope they don't move to a new World Series of Poker uh, bracelet venue the next year, because I'm going to need to build a new shelf next to my mug cabinet uh, to put some more mugs up there. Okay, enough goofing around. Um, let's talk about some poker hands here. So 
it's a really weird dynamic down there playing in the main event. And I think everybody is on, um, you know, bracelet watch. Like I think people that are playing in the world series of poker, um, a lot of us are not used to that kind of environment and, you know, busting in a bracelet event kind of carries some pain with it that, that normal, poker tournaments might not have. And I'll put this out to the group and to our YouTube chat as well. Like, have you felt that that is the case as well? Is there, is there something about the world series of poker? I mean, they're, they've done a great job with their branding. I got to say, because there's something special and magical about the world, the uh, world series of poker, where um, it just carries kind of all this credentialing import uh, to the people that play in it. But um, I find that that makes a really interesting dynamic on the tables because people People don't want to. Uh, people don't want to bust at an even higher level than they normally would. So, I, I thought a little bit about how kind of how to how to adapt to that strategically. And um, my my the one thing I came up with was that there's basically two kinds of players down there. There's the ones that are going to overfold, and then there's the ones that know that people are going to overfold and they're not going to overfold. Rob, I saw you unmute. Did you have some experience with that, or do you have some? Did that trigger a thought? Yeah, I, I don't know that busting a bracelet event is any more hard to do than it is any other tournament that you play. Um, obviously, you're paying more, you're investing more. Um, there's a much bigger upside, so there's a little more excitement there. But I think if you play like it is more devastating to bust one of those tournaments than a normal tournament, then you're not doing it right. Mm -hmm. uh, because mm -hmm. you're going to be more risk averse than you should be. Um, and you should really treat it as if it's any other tournament that you're playing. I think for me, the main thing is the experience of, you know, being in that room and, and being, and playing against those other types of players that you don't find at your local card room. You know, to me, that is the the biggest part of the experience. And I'm not so concerned about, I mean, if I punted off my chips, I might be a little mad. But if I've if I've made a, a an all right play in my mind, I you know, my strategy was fine. I I did what I needed to do and just got unlucky and busted. Well, there you go. At least you had the experience and the fun of playing in that environment. Yep. Couldn't agree more. And I think as we pointed out on a previous episode, you and I are, I don't know what's the word for this, but we're pocket eight buddies. We're, we, we've both busted the main events with pocket eights and we both feel just fine about it. It seems uh, you got it. <laughs> yeah. You got to bust. Everyone bust somehow. I feel great about the way I busted the main event with pocket eights. Uh, Chris. Yeah. The pocket eights weren't a big deal. It was the hand that it was the <laughs> put me down to the <laughs> level that I, the pocket eights were a natural shove. <laughs> So there you have it. Yeah. I mean, I think some, some of the events feel, I mean, you know, I think the main event in particular, it's a freeze out. It's really expensive. It's kind of a bucket list item for a lot of people. I think that carries a certain weight to it that, you know, you're, you really don't want to play differently, but, you know, it is already different. It's got such long levels and an immense structure that that's sort of like, something that's already different from what you're maybe used to, but then there is this sort of weight to it. Like, you know, like 
you're just you're you're not going to get that many chances maybe or and even even if you're like the going to play it every year you're only going to get to play it once a year so i think that one carries a different kind of weight and you can take advantage of that with some players and whatever but yeah i think the rest of them they carry some weight and i agree there's like this sense of excitement when you begin those tournaments it's different than a lot of tournaments i think that's the biggest difference that i feel I'm just chuckling because I hope our YouTube watchers can see John Somsky's uh, name and title that he's put under his Zoom face right now. It's, it's really good. Uh, John, did you have something on that point too? Yeah. Um, well, I was going to say I, I had a question for those of you who are who went this year. Um, every time I've gone, I one of my favorite things is just walking into the Amazon room or the pavilion room as play is about getting started or underway and you hear all of the chip stacks ruffling throughout all the thing. And, and that just kind of overwhelms everything is your background sound. Did, did it have that same feel because you know, there's hundreds of tables there. Did it have that same feel in valleys in Paris? I think, I think it did. So. It certainly. Yeah. 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 Keith talk, talk about it a little bit. Cause I mean, you're looking in, is that that your background right now, Keith, is that this year or is that a previous year? That's Paris black. That's Paris black. Okay. Yep. So that's this, that's this past summer. So what's it like? It, 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 describe it to our audience when you, when you walk in uh, for the first time. It's very similar to uh, the way it was at the Rio. You have all those tables and all those people and uh, all those lines and people talking in those lines. And it's just, it's a, uh, it, it's just a, a lot of fun. I mean, you don't mind waiting in line because you make a friend for a little while while you're there because <laughs> everybody wants to talk, you know? That's so, true. And, you, you know, if you go in there expecting, then then uh, then uh you don't mind it. But, uh, yeah, just the atmosphere. You, you sit down, um, and you're in the middle of all those. I was kind of toward one edge of the room, so and I was back facing the wall, so I could look at the whole room for several levels and uh yeah it, it was great it, it was just but to answer your question john uh it felt it had about the same atmosphere i'd say uh john did you have anything else i see you're still unmuted and we're all just no i was I'm just on afraid of muting myself right now <laughs> yeah, okay that i'll stuff. forget and <laughs> one, I'll keep one thing that. i forgot to, I, I just thought to mention is one thing that's uh is really something is like you're sitting there playing poker with people you don't know, and then you look up and there's uh Eric Seidel walking by mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. Daniel Negreanu or something, people you've only ever seen on TV or whatever. And uh yeah, it's just you that, that's when the atmosphere really hits you. It's when you see one of those superstars just walk by like it's another guy in yeah. a poker tournament. I remember the first year I went out to the World Series in 2012. Um, I had I took pictures and it was like an old iPhone four or something, not great pictures, but you know, I take pictures of everyone I saw and write down all of the famous people I saw, you know, from Barry Greenstein to some of our local uh, people that I saw out there as well. And um, it was a lot of fun to be able to do that and came up with a list of like 30 people. Totally. That was one thing I really enjoyed about the tag team event um, I think I mentioned this on an earlier show is that a lot of the pros play at the tag team event and it was a good field to, to play in. Um, but normally when pros are playing, they're into the game, they're focused on their table. But in this one, 
they were split in time with their partner. And so half the time they were standing in the aisles, you know, railing other players, chatting. And so it was a very approachable sort of uh, collegial vibe. Like it was very easy to strike up a conversation with someone. People were introducing themselves a lot. And um, it was a real social occasion. So I, I hope they do that tag team event every year. I want to play in it every year. And even if I don't, if I'm in Las Vegas, I definitely want to come by and, and watch that tournament because it's just so much fun. Chris? Well, I just, as an observer of that, because I was following because you were in it, it, it seems like that's a format that actually I hope the World Series plays with even more because mm. it just seemed to bring just so much kind of energy and new players to the game and like these kind of sort of team dynamic it became more of a social part of the game, which I think we're sometimes hoping to see some a little bit. And I just, I, I'd love to see them do some formats with the tag team where, you know, maybe you're playing a mixed game kind of yeah. tag team, like a horse game with tag team. You could like have specialists coming in for each. I don't know. Just like I, maybe different buy-in levels. I just hope they, they play with that a little because it felt, uh, I think everyone that I heard talking about that felt the way you were talking about it. Just this mm. like sense that this was like the more, the more kind of fun tournament that they had played all summer and i was lucky to have a great partner uh george sanford who's one of our uh rec poker members from going way back grandpa george um i think he even had to play ace king once but once he got over that i think he had a really good time as well and no one had to sit on, any, on anyone's lap at all i know chris and taylor were worried about that originally but no it was very civilized you just got to alternate seats and uh, we could, <laughs> and it was a really good time uh rob did you have something there i was just gonna say we we're talking about um famous person hunting when i went to the world series main event in 2018 i had a few buddies there that were railing me these were people that were in my uh home game that i won this on and they were there and one of them was just a um a celebrity hound he was going he was chasing around anybody he could find and trying to get selfies with these different people <laughs> and so we we're in the rio in one of the hallways there and he sees johnny chan walking towards the back of the thing and he's that's johnny chan and he goes running down the <laughs> down the hallway out the back door and he comes back he's i got it i got a selfie with johnny chan so you know, yes you, there's a lot of people and they're usually very friendly most of the people that you've seen on tv and that you want to interact with most of the time they're very friendly and willing to take that selfie with you because he got a heck of a lot of selfies that that year yeah, I've been really impressed, not just there, but generally just how generous and open and friendly the poker community has been. Um, so I think if people are out there and you're, you know, you're starstruck or you feel like, you know, these people are living in a different world, they're really not. And if they're, I, I'm sure that they really enjoy getting feedback and uh, uh, meeting fans as much as the Wrecking Crew members and I do. I got a couple of people coming up to me when I was playing down there and said, hey, I just had to come by and say hello and you gave me some great tips on the podcast and you know you've made my poker journey more enjoyable and like man are you kidding you cannot top that you cannot top that when it comes to just like validation and like the pleasure of what we're doing here at rec poker touching people's lives and making them you know making it easier for them to enjoy this wonderful game of poker that we all love so much like so yeah so i'd say tell people not don't be shy you know um when you're down there and you see somebody I, maybe some of the real 
big names are a little jaded over time, but I'm, I assure you they're in the uh, minority and, and pe- people, people like to hear it and get that kind of feedback. So uh, when I played, we'll get into some hands, I guess. So when I played in my first bracelet event, it wasn't that long ago, uh, but I was, I was tight. I felt like this, oh my God, I'm playing in a World Series poker event. Um, and I, you know, I don't like doing things for the first time. I have a steeper learning curve than most people. I'm like way better at things the second time I do them. Um, so the first time I was definitely nervous and played tight and uh, probably overfolded and didn't maximize my EV. And then the second time I played, I felt a little looser and it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's still just poker. And, you know, some of these players are really, really good, but a lot of them are just, you know, in my league and it, it wasn't the end of the world. I felt pretty comfortable this year. I felt totally loose going down there this year. I played in the tag team. I played in uh, the $600 deep stack bracelet event. I played in a $1,500 like super turbo bounty, which was a very, I don't recommend playing that one the same week that you're playing in the main event, because it's going to train your brain to make some really different decisions. Like um, you cannot just sit around and wait for hands in the super turbo bounty event. So I love bounty events and I don't mind turbos either, but I think in retrospect, I probably shouldn't have played that as like part of my main event warm up. Um, but I, again, I felt very comfortable and it did just feel like playing poker. And even in the main event itself, I mean, I've been looking, I've been, even a few years ago, I would have told you that the, I, I wasn't even dreaming of playing the main event because it was beyond the kind of thing that you could dream as a recreational poker player. It just never even occurred to me that I would play in it. Um, but over the last couple of years, it's been something that I've like, I would like to do and I would never spend $10,000 to enter a poker tournament because that's insane. And uh, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. But winning my way in and being able to play in it, it was something that um, I kind of expected to be really tight and kind of nervous about. But honestly, after the first few hands, I felt really relaxed. I just, I knew I wasn't going to bluff a lot out of position. I wasn't going to try and play big pots out of position. I was going to try and stay out of the um, real savvy players way and just take my time and, and get comfy. And I really did like, obviously I didn't want to bust, but I had a few goals going into it and I'd love some feedback from, from you guys or folks in the chat as well on what, what your kind of goals might be if you entered into the main event. Cause everybody busts the main event. There's only one player who doesn't bust the main event every year and they go home with somewhere between eight and $10 million, depending on the year, but everyone else busts and they feel stupid about it. So I knew I was going to bust, but I didn't want to be, my first goal was just don't be the first person to bust in the tournament. <laughs> I just don't want to be the first person to bust. I, and so I was, you know, definitely play. You don't have that long to feel conservative, but, but at first I was like, I'm just not going to be the first person to bust. And then you hear those magical words, seat open. Um, and then all of a sudden it's like, ah, yeah, Chris. Well, you, you already accomplished it when you started because you played day one D, right? So I did, was, I did. So yeah. Lots of people busted before you even saw, <laughs> saw a hand. Yes, they, in the true sense of it, but nominally, we're all playing day one together. And I was just like, I didn't have the stopwatch out on days A through C, but that, that was literally, that was my first goal. Just don't be the first person to bust. And then I was just, I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to bust in the first level. I just don't want to bust in the first level because that's, you know, 
listen, if you get dealt pocket aces and you shove them in pre-flop and you get called by some garbage like pocket fours and, uh, you know, they spike a four, you see where I'm going with this, Chris. Um, what, what are you going to do? You, you played it right. They hit the set. You got your chips in good and you're going home. I don't mind that at all. And I would have gladly taken that if that was how I busted in the first level. But um, that didn't come up. And I just didn't want to bust in the first level if I didn't have to get into a bad beat story like that. So then two hours in, the first level is done. Everyone gets a break. I'm shooting back up to uh, Bally's at that point. And, um, and that did kind of take a lot of the pressure off. Even what little sort of pressure I was feeling at that point, that did kind of take the pressure off. And then my next goal was just I wanted to make day two. Um, lots of people bust on day one, like a third of the entrance bust on day one. A lot of people that are excellent poker players bust on day one. So it's, it's not something that you really get to control. I was kind of, to say it was a goal was more to say, I just hope I'm not one of the people that busts on day one, despite doing everything right, as all sorts of people do who bust on day one. So as it happens, I did not bust on day one. I busted near the end of day two. Um, but certainly when I woke up on day two, I just felt like, let's go. Um, and then, like, it really is a poker tournament now. And if you bust on day two or you bust on day three, or you bust early on day four, like you're equally likely to not make the money at that point. And you want to have as much time soaking it in as possible. Um, but ultimately I was pretty, I was comfortable with the way, with the way it all went, but it did create, so this is what I was talking about. So there's this interesting dynamic in play and there was a spot, uh, on day one, I I'm guessing the second last level. So we've, we've lost a few players at our table. There's a player, uh, two seats to my left who has been extremely active, extremely active, um, like posting a straddle blind preflop, even though you, you, you can't. So he was just putting twice. He, he, it wasn't a straddle, but he was just blind, putting two big blinds in and, and just telling people that it was blind. He didn't. He doesn't get to reopen the action or anything at the end. Like that's his pre-flop, and so he wouldn't look at his cards. And then we'd get to the flop, and then he'd decide how he wanted to play. That didn't happen like a lot, but just to give you an example of of the kind of experience that this guy was looking for, um, and he had been shoving quite a lot. He shoved very often, a um, couple times with perfectly legitimate strong draws, um, and then a couple other times didn't get to show down the other players fold, and I didn't get to see what he had but extremely active player two to my left of course so um that kind of did also kind of tighten me tighten me up a little bit and the player directly to my left was three betting every single open that i made he was like out to get me i think i mentioned on a previous show i don't know if it's because i have the letters rec on my shirt um but there was uh he he definitely felt like he was he was gonna um hold me accountable uh, at our table was a Rob Gardner, who's a, a great guy, uh, YouTube streamer. We'll get him on the show soon. I got to spend some time hanging out with him that week as well. And as we're walking away on like second break or something, he's he's like, "Hey, so Jim, did you like piss in that guy's Cheerios or something?" Or <laughs> I was like, "Okay, so it's not just me that thinks it." Anyway, he's not involved in the hand, but I, I had had to tighten up a bit because. Um, I was just getting three bet all the time. And I, and I didn't want to start getting into light four betting um, on day one of the main event, because I guess I was still feeling a little tight. I didn't want to just go shove it all in there with ace four of diamonds um, and hope for the best. But 
we get to this one hand, I've got Ace King offsuit, and there's this really weird three betting dynamic where unless you're three betting with exactly aces or kings, you're kind of bluffing. Like you're kind of hoping for a fold because people are really only continuing with aces and kings, it felt like, or like exactly ace-king suited. Like people are playing really overfolding to three bets. And so I'd I'd noticed this and I'd started really opening up my three betting range to include a lot of ace-x and king-x hands that if people are going to overfold, let's, let's, let, I mean, it almost, you don't want to start three betting your really strong value hands because then they're going to fold. And you do want to start uh, uh, three betting with hands that, um, make it more likely that they're going to fold, more likely that they're going to have the kind of hand that they have to fold. So that would be hands that have aces or kings in them. If we can make them less likely by having an ace or a king ourselves, then that just seemed it was a good candidate. So we're in the spot where like I'm three betting with ace king and I I don't I honestly don't know if I'm value betting or bluffing <laughs> or like I don't know. It's such a weird the three betting scene is so weird down there. Anyway, so uh a player in middle position opens. I three bet this wild and crazy character to my left calls and the original three better calls. Oh, sorry, the original opener calls. The flop is an above average flop for me. It comes 10 jack queen, making me the nut Broadway straight. I got the top end of Broadway. It's made. My hand can no longer improve. It's the nuts. Uh, I'm feeling pretty good. There's There are two diamonds on the board but I have the king of diamonds in my hand. So I've got the king of diamonds and I don't remember if it was the 10 and the jack or the 10 and the queen or the jack and the queen, but two of those were also diamonds. So you can imagine if if I've got the king and two of those are on the board, then there's only so many diamond combos left for our opponents to have. They could have ace X or they could have, you know, nine, 10 or nine jack or something like that, or some just really random spazzy you know seven six cold calling a three bet whatever but that was really the only thing i was worried about and i was i was thinking about the size of my continuation bet because i definitely wanted to charge the diamond draws and i definitely wanted to get chips in here and as i'm thinking about this the player to my left who is in the big blind shoves they just shove um and they have almost exactly the same stack as i do I think I had at this point, I don't remember exactly what the levels were at. I, mm, I should have looked at that. I do have that in my little notes here. But it was, uh, I think we were something like 70 big blinds effective. And I had three bet. So it was a slightly large pot already. But this guy just makes this big over overshove. Um, too big for it to be like a normal play. The player to my right, the original razor folds. And I'm in this weird position where I've got the nuts, I've got an extremely wide and aggressive player shoving into me and I'm, I'm obviously calling, I'm obviously calling, but I just know that this guy's got two diamonds in his hand and there's two diamonds on the board. And there's, there's the thing about a straight that I learned from uh, Chris Jones is that straights cannot improve. They, they don't, there are no redraws when you've got a straight. Um, you've, you've improved as much as you're going to improve. 
Um, whereas other hands, they can make flushes, they can make full houses. There's a lot of ways for other hands to improve to be a straight. And uh, I, it's the main freaking event. So people are going to get, they're going to make good decisions and get unlucky and go home. And I, I guess I'm putting this out there to the group here and if folks in YouTube who are listening and watching along. I'd love to get your reaction to this because I obviously called. It, it never really crossed my mind not to call, but it did cross my mind just to think and do a little math and be like, okay, so he's got two diamonds almost certainly. It doesn't make sense to do this with anything else. Maybe a set. Um, and even a set has some redraws to a uh, to a full house. So I, I don't I don't love life when he's got a set either. Um, but he's not doing this with nothing. So there's this I you know you're doing the math and you're thinking, okay, so there's somewhere between like a 25 and 33 percent chance that even though I've got the king of diamonds, there, there's a there's a between a quarter and a third percent chance that. I've got the nuts and I'm still going to lose this hand if I call. And this is going to be how I lose the main event. So I just, I'll ask this group here, uh, John, you've unmuted. So I'll start with you in, in that kind of position. Like, what are you thinking about and what, what are the factors that we should be considering? Or like, what, 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 what how would you feel like, how would you feel in that spot? Well, I was actually going to start with <clears throat> something a little bit different that is unique to the main event. It is one of the rare occasions that if you get stuck with a really bad table draw, which it sounds like you had, you can tighten up and because you're going to get a redraw the next day and you're only going to be starting at level five. So, you know, it, just waiting till day two is an option for the main event more so than any other event because of its structure. It doesn't apply to most events. Having said that, um, I don't know that I am physically capable of folding <laughs> the nuts when I know it is still the odds on better hand. You know, there are times where a draw has better odds than a made hand. But this isn't one of them. Right. Um, so I would have a really hard time folding. There is a possibility you're up against the same hand too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, good point. There, but those are the only two possibilities that I see. You're either up against the same hand or you're up against the flush draw. Um, it, it's tough, but I don't think I'm capable of folding there. Chris? I think you're up, up against that or you're up against a, a set too. Like I yep. think uh, 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 tens make a ton of sense with this action to call, sort mm -hmm. of cold call a three bet and or jacks to make, make real, real sense. Um, and I would not be surprised based on the player you're describing that they had something like ace of diamonds, jack X, something like that. Mm. Like, cause you're, you're describing a player that's, been shoving a lot and shoving with sort of like blockers and big draws. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised to see, but regardless, um, you know, I think that straights are tricky animals. Straights are incredibly vulnerable, uh, even though they're really strong. Um, when a lot of money goes into the pot, you, when we have a straight and we have the nuts, 
we're obviously ahead, um, but uh, we're gonna lose more often than if we have a different kind of holding. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's just kind of the nature of, of the, the, you know, you're gonna you're gonna have a lot of times in your poker life where you have the nut straight and the board pairs or the third club diamond heart whatever comes um and you can't improve so you're just done um and but that's i think that's part but but against whether the, the player has let's say they you know they had ace ten of diamonds or they've got jack jack or ten ten whatever they've got um you have a pretty huge advantage over them like yeah. you're you're only going to lose uh, I think in either case around 30% of the time. Um, may, maybe it's even like 20. I, I don't know the exact, I'd have to look it up, but but it's somewhere around, you're like a 70, 30 favorite. Um, and that's, a, you know, it's about as good as it gets. You know, it can't get, obviously we have 80, 20s. We can have, we can have better, but um, if I'm going to get all my chips in the main, um, the, I, I'd like that. So I'm, you know, it's 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 because you know with straights, you that if somebody is doing this, they have outs probably. Right. It's it's unlikely they're doing this with like queen nine, right, or something right, like that. Right. Like, right. You know? right. Oh, so, you'd love that though. Wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even be, this guy. That would no, be but... pretty deleted. But then you could still come queen nine, right? You true. True. Queen, true. Right. So, you, but but yeah. you know, it's unlikely that they're doing this with something that doesn't have um, outs here. So, I, I I'm, but but you know, if we're gonna play these these games, I think we have to get it in. Yeah. If you want certainty, take up chess. Right. Yeah. Like get if you get aces in preflop, you're going to lose a portion of the time. And, you know, poker is not a game to be played by scared money. We talked about this with uh, Clayton uh, Fletcher on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, same kind of thing. You, if you're not going to realize the small edges that you can stack occasionally playing poker, then you're going to lose. So you got to be able to take advantage of those. And this is a huge freaking edge. So I want to address a couple of comments in the in the chat here. Um so Eric Anderson, oh, Eric Anderson is such a godsend to rec poker. He's always, he's, he's, he, he is a prolific forum poster. He's got so much good information about the world of poker that he loves to share with people, with people. I think one of these days we're going to get Eric on the wrecking crew. Uh, here he is posting in here and he says, uh, flush wins 36% of the time and uh, a set makes a full house 33% of the time. Yeah. And that's what, that's what I was thinking when I was in there. Um, Eric, and then I, I had discounted some of the flush combos just because I had you could see a lot of the uh Broadway cards, but of course, if he still has two diamonds, it doesn't make any difference. He's still going to hit his flush the same percentage of the time, even though he's less likely to have those those holdings. So, I that's the way I was thinking about it as well. About a third of the time here, a third of the time, I'm going to go home and I don't want to go home, but again. It, it it never occurred to me not to call, but I just thought it was a really interesting situation. And I think just like in a satellite tournament, you might fold pocket aces, uh, the hand before the bubble bursts or something like that. I can imagine some world in which you might, in some like weird abstract clinical example that Chris Jones puts together for our monthly deep dive or something like that, a very academic situation. 
Um, I, you might find a fold with anything that wasn't the nuts on the river, just because the risk rewards ratio d- didn't make it worth it. Let, let me ask you this though, like, cause you know, you've already earlier today talked about how um, you didn't want to go out on the first hand. So what if right. this was the first hand you're 300 blinds deep and this player just open shoves on you. Like, I, I'm just I'm asking based on your approach there. You're still and let's say if you, I mean if you fold, you still have 280 big right. Blinds. Like, what's what's your no? Approach I then? think I think I, I call happily, and I, it's the same as getting my aces in versus fours yeah. pre flop. Yeah. Um, but I can understand someone else who's who's less experienced, and it's you know they it, very likely going to be the only time they play the main event, and and like there, it's just. You know, people can have priorities other than maximizing their EV, um, especially in a tournament like this. I think in my case, firsthand, bring it on. And what a and what a great story to be able to tell, too, right? Like, oh, oh, how'd you do in the main event? Oh, I, I busted on literally the first hand, flopping the nuts and getting it in good. Um, that's gonna be one that uh that's gonna be one that sticks with you for a while. That's got that's got pocket eights into aces beat, I think. Uh, Keith, yeah, just got to remind yourself. I came here to gamble. <laughs> put that in your head, and it'll be easier. <laughs> I don't come to gamble. I come to play poker. And uh, uh, but yeah, so I think I think that's exactly. But Chris, that's exactly the kind of spot I'm I'm looking for. And folks in the chat, um, I see. Yeah, John Lutzi saying uh, sets should be scared of your straight too. Yeah, could be up against Ace King as well. That's right. That was a great point that John made um, as well. Yeah, blockers aren't real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, blockers, I think sometimes we just use blockers to like make ourselves feel better. I, that's been my take on a lot of this stuff so far. Um, but yeah, so I I could see it uh, if it was the first hand, I could see maybe someone folding just to preserve their life to continue. I could see if 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 it was on a bubble, if it was on a really important bubble like a satellite where having extra chips didn't matter later. Um, even a typical money bubble, I think I'm still calling, even if it's the difference between $0 and $15,000, which is the, the main event bubble, the buy-ins 10K and the first payout's about 15,000. I think I still do it. Um, but maybe on like a satellite, I would, uh, find a fold there just because if I had enough chips left, I don't really need to win the hand to make it into the, into the money on the satellite. So that's, and, you know, we try and find these examples of where we could make these ridiculous folds. It's it's only really ever on the bubble of a satellite. <laughs> I think that's what got, that's what we've learned as we've examined a lot of the stuff at Rec Poker over uh, over the year, over the years. Um, otherwise, you should mostly just be playing good poker, making good poker decisions and uh, and continuing. Uh, John Leslie says uh, Sammy Farha won an all-in first hand of main one, <laughs> the main one year. I think he took second that year. Well, hey, good point. You know what can you do with that big stack? Now um, there is some value to being a big stack at the table because because people are overfolding in the main. If you are comfortable applying pressure, then you know you, you can find some good opportunities to to chip up. That was one thing. Um, I had gotten I had gotten down a bit at the time that this hand took place, so it took me comfortably above average. But I wasn't like dominating the table or anything like that. I think the 
there were a couple of people at the table with more chips than me still. And, um, I didn't really, I didn't get a lot of good spots to, uh, apply pressure, unfortunately. So I didn't really get to reap the benefit of that, but, uh, but yeah, it was a very interesting situation and I just thought it was worth talking about here. Um, so he did end up having two diamonds at showdown. I don't even remember what they were. I think it was like Jack seven or something like that. So it must've been 10 of diamonds, Jack of clubs, queen of diamonds or something like that. And he had just cold called this three bet out of the blinds uh, with Jack seven of diamonds and then just shoved with it. And I, I do remember that the turn and the river both came hearts and you just, you see that flash of red and it's just like, uh, but no, they were, they were both hearts. And uh, yeah, I know it was like, Oh God. <laughs> um, so that was a really, that was a really interesting experience. Uh, yeah. Chris. <laughs> well, I just So, I mean, you got players cold, cold calling your three bet with Jack seven of diamonds. That's, that's pretty, that's maybe that's, that's that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's like it's like those kind of situations where we were talking um about like a bad bad beats and downswings on on a forum recently and it's like you can tell yourself, "Oh, no, you want them to be making those kind of mistakes." And no, it's good for you if players do that. It's like, "Yeah, 99 times out of 100, but I do not want to see that hand right now. Do not show me that hand." <laughs> Rob Oh, one thing about we've been talking about in our book study is the types of um, types of events that draw bad players. Well, I sh- mm. shouldn't say bad players, but less seasoned players. Yeah, is the main event is one of the biggest ones. So early on, you're going to be in a lot more situations against less studied players than you are as you get deeper and deeper, as you get deeper in any tournament, the competition becomes better and better and better because the mm-hmm. lesser studied players have already busted out. So the variance at the beginning is also going to be a lot higher than it is as you get deeper into the tournament. So uh, yeah, to get deeper into the tournament, you have to accept that variance early on. Otherwise you're never going to get there. And you're going to be able to take advantage of people that are calling three bets with Jack seven suited. So, yep, it's true. And listen, you know, aggression wins in poker tournaments. So you can't, you can't just sit around and try and call your way into making hands and, and getting paid because it's not going to happen. Even in the most luxurious, deep patient blind structure out there, um, you're just you're not going to fold your way to the money. You can't fold your way to the money, and unless you're just going to get really lucky that day, and I don't know how you get to plan on that in advance. Um, you just you gotta be the aggressive player. Sometimes you got otherwise you're just not going to get enough good hands to make it into the money. Um, a good good comment from Troy Chapman here saying, uh, if they do call a three bet, what does the range look like? Jack seven suited is probably not a normal part of that range. <laughs> is there ever a situation when we should be cold calling a three bet, which is a great point. Just like, like I'm talking about here, you'd much rather be the player making the three bet than the player calling the three bet, not only because of what it means for the actual hand that you have, but because of the range advantage that you then bring to future streets, being able to play with an uncapped range versus a capped range uh, helps a lot. A lot. And that's a lesson that 
I think even our, our serious, thoughtful recreational players on the wrecking crew and our premium members, we're, we're still probably not three betting enough. And in certain spots, I mean, we should be three betting much more widely than we do because players don't respond in an optimal way to it. And it creates circumstances where they will make mistakes. And poker is just about creating opportunities for your opponents to make more mistakes than you or, uh, or bigger mistakes than you. A uh, great comment from, from Keith here, set mining in the early huge stack levels, you could cold call a three bet. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, but that's about it. Or or like super strong hands that you're trapping with, or if, if you feel like someone to your left is going to maybe put a cold four bet in or something like that, or the original razor uh, might do it, then I could see that kind of trappiness. But yeah, it's going to be very rare that it's not a, a pocket pair of some strength. Uh, up to up to ace ace there. I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. So I was going to go over another three betting hand, but I think we're already coming up on an hour, and maybe we should save this for the forums edition. Um, is there any other thoughts on on this uh, dynamic or on that kind of experience? Because uh, I did, I so we'll talk a little bit more about three betting in a forums edition that'll come out in a few weeks, and we'll talk about a hand uh, where I chose to take advantage of this. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? This characteristic of the field to be over overfolding to three bets, and I think there's a lot of value to be had in making those king x ace x uh, three bets just to get the folds when people are going to fold. Keith, do you have something? Yeah, I, I think that probably the most important thing to take with you in in a bucket list event of any sort whether it's poker or anything would be to make sure you have fun yes that's number rule number one it's got to be fun yep that's right folding big hands isn't fun no (laughs) it's true it's true rob we cut you off there a little you're muted but did you have something that you wanted to uh, jump in with the word you're looking for is dynamic thank you thank you rob (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um okay we got a question from troy here so how strong should your hand be to cold four bet along the same vein it's a great question and we've got a few minutes we can talk about this so personally speaking cold four betting isn't something that anybody's going to be doing a lot you should really be doing it based on what you have uh w- w- the opponent so if if you have an opponent who if you have one opponent who opens really wide and then you have another opponent who three bets really wide, you can four bet with an ace blocker and they will both fold a certain percentage of the time. And that can be a profitable four bet, even with a garbage hand that has an ace in it. Um, Alex Fitzgerald did a whole bit on this several years ago. Um, which I, I should review because it's really interesting math on it. But if you're holding an ace and they open wide enough and this other player three bets wide enough, you can get frisky with some ace X hands and make them cold four bets. Other than that, it's mostly aces and Kings um, out of the, out of the, the players that the pools that we're playing in. Chris, what's your experience with that? Um, well, I was just going to say, this is a, this is a pretty interesting spot. The one that we're talking about exactly here 
um, for, well, actually it's not because the player I'm th- thinking about would be the one who would be cold for betting. The one that cold called is the one we're talking about. Yes. The wild, so, but, crazy player. If we kind of moved it over, right. Where you had you, who you were saying had to tighten up because of the experience of the players on your left. So you've got a, a player who is tight, which gives them a range. That's a little bit scary to four bet into because they're already tight, but they're also somebody who maybe we've seen play a little bit tighter and maybe can make folds. And then you have a wildly loose kind of Jack seven type player who's made a three bet here. That's a pretty interesting spot. It's, it's a lot like squeezing. It's just yes. higher variance. It's, yes. it's much higher variance and it's, but it can be very profitable if you can pull it off in the right against the right players in the right circumstances um because it's 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 so it's so many chips it's like when you when you do this in the right spot you can just you can really print a lot of chips yep. you can also get yourself into a lot of trouble <laughs> um i mean if, if we're four bidding here i think we have to so we have to be splitting up our range then we have to be splitting up between some really premium holdings which we're four betting for value and then finding the kind of hands that you're talking about that become our four bet bluffs. Um, you know, those, those kind of ace fives, ace deuces, those kinds of hands, and they can be really profitable four bets. And Chris, in, in moments like this, I'm just going to put you on the spot a little, cause you're the brains of this operation. When ranges get super tight like that, um, it kind of promotes some hands that would like, what am I trying to say? Some hands that might be like calls before now have to either be three bet, full like four bet bluffs or fold so like is it even ace five like is it a hand like ace 10 or ace jack instead that you would have to fold but now you're making it a four bet or is ace five just a better candidate and you would fold ace jack and ace 10 uh but you would four bet with ace five because because i feel like it has to have some ability to win when it does get when it doesn't get through there's got to be some you know it's not a seven offsuit but what like, do you have a calling range there? Like, like what, what, do you, how do you do that? I, I, I mean, so I would, uh, first of all, I'd love to hear what other people think about this, but I, so to answer your, there's sort of two questions there to answer your question, which if I had ACE Jack or ACE five suited, um, I would much rather cold four bet with ACE five, um, because ACE Jack, while it can sort of interfere with their ability to have some jacks, it's the kind of hand that's like, not going to be it's not going to be that ideal like ace five has a lot of opportunities and it's going to be sort of unencumbered there's not going to be a lot of things blo- if we're going to hit a really big hand with ace five um our opponent isn't also going to hit a very big mm-hmm. hand. um and so that that's a kind of hand that we can sort of get a little frisky with down the road so i i and i'd much rather sort of like have that 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 bottom end of the of the the cards in that kind of situation because our opponent who has three bet or opened uh, is going to have a pretty strong range. They're going to be really strong with Broadway cards. They're going to be really strong with, uh, you know, high pairs. And so um, we're, we're hoping for a fold. Don't get me wrong. We don't want to get into a war here, but if we do, I'd rather have a hand that's sort of like that. I know where I'm at with it. Um, Like if, if, if we four bet with ACE Jack and it comes Jack seven five. <laughs> right. Are we happy? 
I don't know, right? <laughs> yes. um, so, like, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Um, but the, to, to answer your other question, um, which I think is sort of the more interesting one, do we have a cold three bet, you know, a cold three bet call range? Uh, I think we should. I do. I think we should, uh, you know, really think about what that looks like. It, to me, it depends on what kind of stacks we're talking about, what kind of positions we're in. So it's not always that we just do it with like jacks and tens, but those are good candidates. Um, but they're the kind of hands that, um, you know, especially in a, in a like a, a tournament like the main event where we don't necessarily want to just four bet with tens all the time, but they might be a little too strong to fold, especially against maybe a, a, a wild three better. And they're the kind of hands that can can make some sense as cold three bets or cold call three bets. Mm-hmm. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. And it is a very narrow range of hands. Um, I also, I don't know if this is true or not, but I, I don't like to have hands with tens and jacks in them when I'm bluff raising because the hands that I want my opponent to fold have tens and jacks and nines and stuff in them. And so I'm kind of like blocking them from having the hands that I want them to fold in this spot. And I'd rather have a hand um, that allowed that unblocked that. And as, as Eric um, says here in the chat, kind of getting to your point, Chris, uh, with ace five suited, our nuts are unblocked. And um, sort of like what I was getting along there, you're not in that second best scenario. And I think in the example that Chris talked about, you know, Jack seven, five boards, and you've got ace Jack, you know, you're, if you called with ace Jack suited, you're not really loving any one pair hand that you can make out of that. Um, top pair, top kicker when they could have pocket queens, kings, or aces in their three betting range isn't a comfortable position to be in. And um, you're really, you're really trying to make a hand that can beat one pair. Anytime you're in a spot like this, I'm going to harp on this a little bit, folks. Anytime you're in a spot like this and you're trying to either catch someone out by like putting a big hand on them that they don't expect or you're three betting light for board coverage, like seven, five suited or something like that. You really don't want to get married to one pair. And it, it, I, I don't know who needs to hear this, but <laughs> um, you're going to lose a lot of money if you represent strength pre-flop. And then the strength that you carry through is just a weaker version of the strength that you were repping. So like a pair, making a pair with a seven or a pair with a five or a pair with a jack is just not going to be a strong enough hand to beat your opponent's range that calls your raise and then puts chips in post-flop. So you really need to be making a two-pair or better hand. And since almost every hand in poker can make two pairs, so that's not really a good good criteria, uh, making straights and flushes becomes really important. Um, or making, you know, the best possible pair or the best possible kicker. Um, you're still going to be behind that set of aces every once in a while, but the, the class of hands that you're behind is much, much, much smaller. And the, the class of hands that you actually dominate is much, much, much bigger in those kinds of spots. So do, do, do factor that in and just remember not to get married to one pair. I go through my, my coaching clients. One of the things I do going through their database, we usually start with a database review just to get a sense of where the low-hanging fruit is and where they can improve immediately and get a real immediate return on their investment. Um, you know, a lot of players are losing players over the history of their game with one pair. You get to showdown with one pair 
a lot of players are losing money in the long run getting to showdown with one pair. It's because they're playing one pair as a value hand. And a lot of times one pair is really a bluff catcher. So um, that's something you got to be thinking about when you're in these spots. And especially when you're representing strength, when you're representing strength and you're actually coming to the table with a week one pair, you're not fooling anybody. You're just not showing up with a, you're bringing a knife to a gunfight. So, uh, okay, I'll get off my one pair soapbox there, but um, uh, be careful with one pair folks. Okay. Uh, speaking about being careful, we uh, there's a pod, there's a forums edition coming out in a week or two where we talked about the theme of the month, which is blind versus blind, and we talked about it uh, from the standpoint of our deep dive. And Chris Jones, who does this every month, has been talking about uh, what the theme of the month is. We do a podcast episode, we do our play along uh, seminar every month for our premium members. Daro Carney takes a look at the um, a hand that some of our members made and gives us some feedback. And we were talking a lot about in the small blind, the value of completing your small blind with a limp instead of raising. We got, we cover, listen to the episodes coming out next week. I think there's a lot of really good stuff in there, but uh, Joe Coolis, who was in our focus last week, um, reminded me that we should sort of make a note to our cash players that because rake exists, this is not a strategy that you should be employing in cash games. I play a lot of cash games. I don't really limp the small blind much as a as a rule. I hadn't quite thought about why I don't necessarily, um, but Keith will remember as well. Keith was there in that focus session. Uh, I don't know if Rob was as well, um, but Joe just made this really good point that because un, uh, hands that don't get to the flop don't get raked, there's a huge benefit when you're playing cash to uh, to raising and taking the pot down pre-flop so that you don't have to pay the rake on that hand. So limping the small blind to open, uh, sorry, when it's folded to you in the small blind, completing with a limp, often what's going to happen is you're going to go to a flop and that will end up being a raked hand. And uh, you can avoid that by chopping which is great if you're playing cash. Chopping moves the game along for everybody. And uh, some folks might not want to do that because there's a bad beat jackpot or there's a high hand. And so people will want to play hands that could make the high hand. Um, So I'll listen to the episode and you and your friends can decide on the etiquette of that. But I just wanted to reinforce to our listeners before you hear that episode, if you're listening to these in order, that that particular episode is mostly talking about tournament poker when it comes to blind versus blind. And I'd encourage our listeners, if you're playing cash, to stick to the part of the episode where we talk about opening large amounts, large sizes from the small blind and make that a, a much bigger part of your game and probably fold a lot of the other stuff as well. All right, gang, um, what else should we talk about before we let this cast of characters hanging out in the YouTube chat uh, head on out of here. I guess at the very least, we should talk to our uh, co, our producing co-host John Somsky about what's going on in home game land this week. John, what is new and exciting there? Well, of course, we had our mixed game championship series, and none none other than MN Ted yeah. won that event. That's, That's his third mixed game victory this year. He's on fire Fourth too. Lifetime, yeah. Um, and then we ha- also had our tournament of champions, and I thought it was very fitting that a really mad guy oh! got his tenth victory for the August 
tournament uh, of champions, or I mean, for the July tournament of champions, given that he was on fire all yeah, through July. Wow. So I think that uh, makes a lot of sense there. A really mad guy coming through, continuing at the highest levels to bring that right. A game. This is his 10th victory, and I believe he just joined this year. Yeah. This is one of the most impressive months I can remember anybody having. Yeah, good it's really, it's, I mean, His name, it's like, because I think it's, like, I don't know, actually, we don't know who it is, right? So No, I have no idea. Could be, I've well, got, actually, his name is listed as Mad Guy. I yes. have a mad guy. Like that. <laughs> well, you never know. You never know. Yeah, but, be, you never but, know. Uh, Maybe it's Dutch. It is, is that Dutch? I think it's Dutch. <laughs> could be. Whoever it is, it's very impressive. Yeah, it really is. And um, just because we haven't interrupted John enough lately, I just want to mention before everyone uh, tunes out um, that we are going to do our contest at the end of the show here. So we're giving away a copy of uh, Dario Carney and uh, Barry Carter's book, uh, End Game Poker Strategy, the ICM book, which you will want if you are going to be making it deep in any kind of tournament. This is the kind of experience that you're going to want to be thinking about before you get to that final table. Um, it's the subject of our book study right now. And anyone who is uh, in our YouTube chat every week can win a copy for free just by typing the word food bank into the chat there. So if you're in our YouTube chat, just type the word food bank in and uh, uh, we'll do our little die rolling magic later once um, once John's finished with the home game results that we'll let him get back to you right now. All right. Then on August 8th, Poker Geek MN, John Somsky got his yeah. nightly victory for the year. Way to go, Poker buddy. Wannabe, Ron Payton, got his nice. second nightly victory for the year. I haven't Graphics. met Ron, but he's a Canadian guy. I love that. Graphics. Graphics. Roger. Well, it's private here. Oh, oh, oh so God. I just remember, doxed Roger Shooty. Oh, God. Wait. Yep. No, we'll call him. We'll call him Roger S. No, no, no. That's too obvious. We'll call him R. Shooty. Okay. Okay. There. Anyway, yeah. Graphic 16 got his fourth nightly victory for the year. <laughs> uh, Mudslinger 1942. Jack hmm. Peschel got his first nightly victory Congrats, for the year. Jack. Poker Geek MN John Somsky got his. What? Nightly Whoa, victory. Oh, two in a week. That All is right. two in a week. Well, and I want you to know that that makes for me this year seven total victories. And if you remember in the beginning of the year, I said, I think I'm half as good as <laughs> um <laughs> Jacob Kiki. <laughs> yeah. As Keck Geek Jr. So Keck Geek 65 is private also, Jim. Come on. <laughs> oh, no, I'm doxing everybody. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I thought that, you know, I would make my goal for 10. Well, I've got seven of them now. So there is right a chance track. I will actually achieve this. You're right on track. Congratulations, John. And just because we're going to interrupt you two or three times, I think, today to make up for some lost time. Um and how great is that, Roger Shooty? So I, I I don't know. I don't mention this enough, but Roger helps us put every single podcast together that we do uh, behind the scenes, and he's really involved in the the every step of the production. He's got he's full of great ideas. He's got a big heart. He's also someone who really appreciates the plight of people suffering from food insecurity. I know he's um, doing all sorts of things in the world to make the, the poker world and the, the rest of the world a better place. So Roger Schutte, congratulations on your win, man. And uh, thank you for everything you do here at Rec Poker. It's really appreciated. Then for our daily mixed event, Kambinkley 
Oh, He's also nice. private here. Uh, got his won his first <laughs> daily mixed event <laughs> for the year. So folks are going to have to go in and start entering their, um, yeah, their first I mean, and last names. Making it public, so well known to them. I mean, come on, where <laughs> I know. it's because I I pulled out the back door that we yeah. had in there. You know that I way know. people are in total control. And well, then. If John says you're private, you got to go to your rec poker profile and make your first and last name public so that we don't accidentally dox you or I don't right. do it on purpose because uh, we don't like, need yeah. any, we don't need like any Eric. You mean like Eric? Yeah. Should go out there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then we have uh, Fergie 56, oh another private one. Well, um, I'm not doing it. I'm not on. saying that. <laughs> <laughs> got her first international victory. For oh, the, you know, it's a her. Uh, <laughs> or him. <laughs> Although she does host an empowerment group for women yeah. here. So well, I'm I thinking think... anybody in the wrecking crew should not be private. I'm yeah, we, we yeah. could start. We could start. We could start. They probably sign as part of their wrecking crew application process. I'm sure we own their image and, you know, the full yeah. rights to do whatever <laughs> we want with their material. Good point. Good point. Nicely done, and Kim I Kilroy. Oslo Tron Vidar Stensby. Oh, right on. Got his second international victory for the year. Such a cool dude. And last but not least, Shark Slayer 21, Lucky Hawes, won the Learn Pro Poker event. Wow. So can or she, because I don't know what gender Lucky is, maybe both, um, may contact Jim at Poker for one free month at Learn Pro Poker. There you go. Lucky. I know Lucky a little because um, when he was a new member, um, there was some kerfuffle over some comments in the chat. And and Lucky and I had to have a chat about sort of what how we like to comport ourselves around here. And um, they've they've been great. They're really receptive, had a really good attitude about it. Um, I, I was pleased that they're enjoying the home game so much and it was only a matter of time lucky Haas. uh congratulations on your win and uh good to see you still enjoying those home games way to go and yeah do email me i know you've got my email address already but just in case it's jim at rec.poker jim at rec.poker and uh you will love your free month of learning material available for you at learn pro poker there's a just a wealth of information there available to you uh well thanks john and um, see what happens when you volunteer to be the uh, producing co-host of the show for a week. Boom. Victories, not just one, but two victories in the same week. I, I think those things are related because the more you give, the more you get. That's kind of how it works here. At I just figured I need to have some wins to overset all of the fails that was about <laughs> to happen. <laughs> That's right. It's all about balance. You're such, you're such exactly. a Exactly. You look out, Rob, you got another Zen master coming for you here. I think uh, John's, John's mastering the, the balance. Uh, we got some fun comments here in the chat. I really appreciate uh, the feedback from um troy and eric and john and martha and josh i always love this real-time interaction that we get from our listeners so i'd encourage again folks please go uh if you're enjoying the podcast and you're free on monday nights at 7 30 eastern uh just check us out on youtube come to the youtube channel it's free we often have a guest and uh, we'll talk to people uh, that are extremely interesting in the world of poker and you can win uh, a contest and get something free Tonight, I see we're going to start with Josh and work our way down from there. I think it sounds like uh, Eric probably already has that copy. 
But all right, we're going to roll this one. It has been historically a one. We're rolling a lot of ones, but we're going to roll this one and we'll see who it is. We did not roll a one. It is John Lutze. There you go, John. Congratulations. You're going to get a kick out of this one. Um, the end game poker strategy, the ICM book by Darrow Carney and uh, Barry Carter. So, uh, John, you know the drill. Send me an email, please, sir, jim at rec.poker, and I'll make sure you get an e-copy of that fantastic book. It's the one we're doing in our book study right now, and uh, Rob and I were just talking about what the next book study might contain. It's it's a ways off, but we like to plan this a little bit in advance, so no plans right now, but keep your uh, eyes peeled on the uh, at rec poker Twitter handle. We'll probably be doing something there to do a poll. We're going to talk to the one and only Mark Pershawn over at Website Amp and try and get a poll going on the website or something like that as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, I guess that's really all we have to say about that at this point. Okay, anything else, gang? Should we uh, let these brave poker fans get back to their families? All right, that sounds good. Well, again, I want to thank uh, the Running Aces Hotel Racetrack and Casino and Website Amp. And Keith and Rob and Chris and John and all these amazing uh, listeners and YouTube listeners. And support your local food bank. And we'll see you next week.